Well, go ahead and open up to Hebrews chapter 11. We're taking this chapter in three parts, and this is part two. If you're just joining us uh, today or recently, we're walking our way through the book of Hebrews. It's a very deep, very interesting book, and an argument is built chapter after chapter, verse after verse. Jesus Christ is greater than, it's what we've called the series, Jesus Christ is greater than anything else that we might trust in or turn to for our salvation. And so today we're back in this Hall of Faith chapter where these great saints of old are held up as examples of faith. And we're going to look at what is it we're supposed to see in their lives. And ultimately, I hope that we can all end with a challenge. Are we enduring in faith? And what is it that our faith is based upon? So let me start with a question. What's the difference between a relationship that is based on feelings versus a relationship based on promise? Specifically, let's ask about a marriage. What's the difference between a marriage based on feelings versus a marriage based on promise? Now, when you're thinking about marriage, when you're dating somebody, when you're talking to somebody that might be dating somebody and they're saying, oh, I'm really thinking this might be the one and you start talking to them about that. Well, how do you feel about them? How do they feel about you? And you talk a lot about feelings and that's good, right? You really should feel something for the one you're about to marry. That's good. Okay, Don't leave here and be like, he said we shouldn't feel anything for our husband or wife. Not saying that. All right. Some of the guys are like, see, I told you so. No. <laughs> That's not what I'm saying. But as much as we talk about feelings in a relationship, at the heart and soul of a wedding ceremony, there is this moment where either I as the pastor or somebody else, they're standing there and the bride is on one side and the groom on the other. I think the bride's usually here and the groom's here. And, and they're looking at each other. And we've done music. We've done prayers, there might have been some candles lit or something like that. And we're at this point where I'm asking them to make a vow to each other. They are saying something, they're making a promise from the one person to the other. And in that vow, typically, in the traditional vows, and even in most of the vows that, that couples might write, at least in a, a good Christian ceremony, they're not going on and on about their feelings. The vow is not based on feelings, is it? It's in sickness or in health, in good times or bad times. To death do us part. I pledge myself to you. I commit myself to you. At the heart of the ceremony that brings a husband and wife together, that begins the marriage that is to last the rest of their life, there is a promise, not a feeling. Right? And so as that relationship goes on, if that relationship is based on a feeling, what happens when they don't feel that way anymore? Well, if that's the foundation of the relationship, then our culture today would tell you, well, then that's the time to end the relationship because you don't feel that way anymore. In fact, I think our, rela- or our culture even goes farther than that to say you have an obligation to end that relationship because you don't feel that way anymore. You have to feel happy and fulfilled. So get out of that relationship. 
Christian wedding, a biblical wedding, a biblical marriage is not based on a feeling. Hopefully involves feelings, but not based on them. It's based on a promise. The man looks at the woman, the woman looks at the man and says, I promise for the rest of my life, I'm committed to you. So in those days, and those moments that may come, and they wake up and say, I'm not feeling it. Hopefully they have a loving brother or sister in Christ that come alongside them and, and kind of put their arm around them gently and loving and say to them, who cares? Get over yourself. You made a promise. And nobody cares in this moment how you feel. That is not the heart and soul of your marriage. You are promised to each other. Today we're looking at Hebrews chapter 11. Verses 17 through 31. And it's not about marriage. It's not about weddings. But it is about promise. And I believe that our view of marriages, our view of relationships, is just a symptom that that then gets imported into or undermines our relationship with God as well. And as Christians, I think we're very prone to say, how do I feel about my relationship with God? How do I feel about worship today? How do I feel about Jesus Christ today? How do I feel about the, the word that I'm reading? Now again, listen to me. I hope you feel something for God. I hope you feel excited when we sing some of these great songs. I hope you feel excited when we get to open God's Word together, whether here or in Sunday school or small groups. I hope you feel something. The Bible has a lot to say about feelings. Feelings are good. But if that's what you're basing your relationship with God on, when difficult times come and faith does not feel good, you're out of there. And so we have to base our faith on promise. And so we're looking at promise-based enduring faith. Faith that endures in difficulty because it's based on promise. And we're going to see examples, as we have already in in Hebrews 11, but we're going to look specifically at two key examples, Abraham and Moses, and then other examples that were kind of a part of their story and impacted by their story. So let's begin by reading the whole chapter. Uh, Let's just put before us verses 17 through 31, and then we'll pick through it. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so, in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. 
He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and the application of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around them for seven days. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. The passage here starts with, and we're sort of jumping into the middle of this section, but it starts with Abraham. This great example of faith. But right away, we are introduced to this crisis of his faith, this great difficult moment in his life, where what had been promised to God was not matching up with the situation. And we all face situations like that. What do you do when what you're taught in Sunday school, what you read in Scripture, what you believe to be true in your heart, hopefully as a Christian, what do you do when that doesn't line up with a situation at work or at home or in our society? If your faith is based on feelings, what often happens is we change what we believe so that it matches, so that it makes sense, so that it feels better. But if it's based on promise, then we have to endure. We have to trust that God is faithful. Now, Abraham's situation, as some of you well know, was very unique. Abraham's crisis of faith was a God-made crisis. God put a situation in his life which caused him to be in a crisis of faith. Was he going to go his own way Or trust God's way. God had promised something to Abraham. We see in verse 17. He who had embraced the promises. Abraham trusted God. His life was a demonstration of this trust. Not always perfectly. But he left his homeland. He left his people. He left in many ways what made him him. And what gave him security in life. And he left it behind. God said go that way. Keep walking. I'll tell you when to stop. Abraham said okay. And so he goes and he gets to the promised land and God promises him in Genesis 12. He said, you're going to be a great nation. He promises him blessing and protection. And through Abraham, all the nations of the world will be blessed. This is just one guy. He's fairly well off, but he's still one guy with a handful of people and his family and his household around him. And they're living in a home that isn't their own. They're living in a land that is promised to them, but it's really inhabited by a bunch of other people. He says, okay, and he trusted God. Genesis 15, this promise of being a great nation is even more specific. Kind of the logical conclusion, Abraham has to have a child. He has to have an heir. This man and this woman who were past childbearing age, God says, you will give birth to a son. So he trusts him. And this child of the promise is born. Turn with me to Genesis 22. Because I want to read straight from the source this moment of crisis for Abraham. Genesis chapter 22. I want to read verses 1 through 19. And as I read, I I just want to challenge you and encourage you on something. And, And maybe this is just me. But it's easy when we read long passages of Scripture to just sort of tune out. I want you to think, what would I be thinking if I was in Abraham's shoes? 
What would I be feeling if I was in Abraham's shoes? What thoughts would be going through my head? What concerns would be going through my mind? Because this is a very difficult moment for Abraham. This is not just just an easy Sunday school flannel graph story. This is hard stuff to think about what Abraham is being challenged to do. God promised him this child. The child has come. He's now probably an early teenager. And now God is going to ask Abraham to do the unthinkable. So let's pick up the story. Genesis 22, starting in verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servant, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering, placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all nations on the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants, and they set off together for Beersheba. And Abraham stayed in Beersheba. What a story. Why did Abraham do this? Did it make any sense, given the situation, given the moment, did it make any sense to kill his son? And the answer to that is no. In fact, it went contrary to what God had told them. This wasn't even just human logic. This was God-given logic. This is the child of the promise. This is your future. All of the blessings are coming through this child. Now go take that child and kill him. It makes no sense whatsoever. But you see, Abraham had a struggle in his life. 
Abraham so often trusted the promises of God. But if you look at the accounts in Genesis, at least as I look at them, one of the things I'm struck with again and again and again is that Abraham often felt that it was his duty, his responsibility to figure out how to fulfill the promises of God. So he would take the promise and say, I get it, I understand it, here's all the stuff I need to do. And he so often made big, big mistakes. And constantly, it was like God was coming back to him and saying, Abraham, you just need to trust me. It's my job to carry out my promises. It's your job to trust me. And Abraham would say, good, 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 I got it, I got it, I got it. He'd go off and try to do it his own. And he got into trouble over and over again. And so God brings into his life this moment. This moment when I think in many ways all of the alternative ways of trying to figure out God's plan are completely taken off the table. Abraham had to either trust God or not. And so God said, are you going to try to figure out how to accomplish my promise, weasel your way around this, or are you going to trust me that I will fulfill my promise and you're going to be faithful now, God didn't actually want Abraham to kill his son. That's abundantly clear from Scripture. But he wanted Abraham to get to that point where he had let go of what he was holding on to and 100% trusted in the promise that God had given him. We see, if we go back to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11, we see this promise-based thinking says in verse 17, he who had embraced the promises. So he was trusting in God and yet doing something simply because God said so that in that moment, I believe, went totally against every feeling that he had. But he said, I'm going to trust the promise, not my feelings about that or not my feelings about the situation. The author of Hebrews gives us a bit of insight into Abraham's thinking. It says in verse 19 that he believed God can even raise the dead. Now, if you look in the Genesis account, this actually isn't there. But it is, sort of. You see, back in Genesis 22, verse 5, Abraham tells his servant, we will worship and then we will come back to you. Well, if Abraham and Isaac go off to do the sacrifice and Abraham and Isaac are coming back and Abraham knows that the sacrifice is Isaac, Somehow Isaac's coming back. And here I think we begin to see the beauty of this story. I don't think Abraham really truly knew how this was going to work out. I think he had gotten to the point of realizing it wasn't his job to figure out how this was all going to work out. It was God's job to fulfill his promise. And God's very good at his job. It's our job to trust him and to live in faith. And so Abraham chose to have faith based on the promise of God. And that promise and that faith had an impact on future generations. And so the rest of the story goes on. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith, Jacob, this is verse 21, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. These three accounts, Isaac blessing his children, Jacob blessing Joseph's children, and Joseph giving instructions about what to do with his body after he died, 
all go against what would have made sense and what was normal and regular to their culture. And I think that's why they're laid out here. They were trusting the promise of God. And they, as they trusted that promise, even in many of the mistakes they made, they become a testimony, an example of the promise of God continuing in somebody's life. Let me just give you a little bit about these stories very quick in case you're not familiar with them. Isaac has these twins, Jacob and Esau. Esau is the older one. It is his birthright, his right by birth, to inherit everything from his father, or at least mostly everything. And part of that would have been, in their way of thinking, the promise. I know that seems weird, but the promise should have gone from being this great person of God from Abraham to Isaac to Esau. And yet something happens. The promise instead goes to Jacob. Now, if you read this here, by faith, Jacob, or I'm sorry, by faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. It's an interesting way of saying it. Because if you know the Old Testament story, it wasn't necessarily by faith that Isaac did this. It was by accident. Isaac thought he was giving the birthright to Esau. He thought he was blessing Esau. Jacob deceived him. And so Jacob took the blessing. And yet the story is very clear. And in the bigger picture of Scripture, it's very clear. That was God's plan all along. God's plan doesn't always go along with our feelings. In fact, often it doesn't. God's plan doesn't usually make sense with what makes sense in our world. So the faith here of this moment of this blessing is not, hey, be like Isaac and make a mistake and let your sons trick you. That's not the moral of the story here. It's Isaac lived a life of trusting and faith. And look at how that worked out. Look at how God was faithful to him. Joseph is a similar story. The the sons of... uh, I'm sorry, Jacob. When Jacob blesses Joseph's sons, Joseph brings his sons to Jacob. Jacob reverses his hands and blesses the younger one over the older one. And the father tries to correct him. And Joseph says, no, what I've done, I've done. This is God's will. And again, it went against what they thought was normal. And then we have this account of Joseph, this easy-to-miss detail of the Exodus. What's going on here is that when Joseph is toward the end of his life, things are really good in Egypt. We think of things going bad and Israelites being enslaved. That came later. Things were good when Joseph was alive. And it would have been easy for him to say to his ancestors, hey guys, just camp out here, settle down. Things are great. This is what God has for you. He brought us here. Let's just stay here. But instead, he did something really weird. He looked at them and he said, when I die, you take my body and don't bury it here. You you take my body and you embalm it. You turn me into a mummy, if you would. Because one day, I know God's taking you out of this place. This place is not your home. And one day you're going to go to your home and my home and you take my body with you and you bury me there. For 400 years, they held on to the body of Joseph. Ooh, right? I don't know how they did that. I don't know if there was like some tent out back. and They're like, yeah, don't go in there. That's Uncle Joseph. I, I don't know. I don't know how that worked. I'm assuming it was a little better than that. But they held on. But I do believe that somehow they all knew. It wasn't like he was hiding somewhere, like they tucked him away and nobody knew about him. Because when they left, the Bible's very clear, they did exactly what he had asked them. For 400 years, 
the request of Joseph remained. And for 400 years, it was a constant reminder, we're leaving one day. This is not our home. So when they left, in the midst of all the craziness of having to flee from Egypt and all the plagues and all the signs and everything else that's going on, they took the body of Joseph with them. What a story of faith. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph all show the strength, not of their own faith. Yes, that's there. But I don't think that's what's being called out in this chapter. They're showing the strength of God's promise. God's promise was true. This chapter is not be like Abraham or later be like Moses, who we're going to look at and some of the things he's recognized for. He didn't do so well. This chapter is about having the faith in the one in whom they had faith. And this doesn't mean it's easy. As we look at this next section, verses 23 through 31, we're going to look at enduring through difficulty. Faith that endures through difficulty. It would be so easy to stand up in front of you and say, boy, if you just believe, everything will go better in your life. It would be so much easier. You'll get that job you want. You'll get the car you want. You'll have the family you want. You'll live where you want. Everything will go wonderful. That would be easy, and you guys would probably love it. But that is not Scripture. Trusting in God's promise is good long-term, absolutely. There is happiness and joy and blessing there. I think we will find nowhere else. Long-term, absolutely. But along the way, make no mistake, the promises of God and the faithful following of those promises will lead you through difficulty. Partially because those promises are out of line with the ways of this world and partially because that is God's will, just like it was for Abraham. So let's look at some of these difficulties, looking at Moses. Moses was born in a difficult situation. The Pharaoh had given orders to kill the Israelite children as they were born. And yet his family and the midwives, they they protected him. He was raised as long as they could in their own home, as long as they could hide him. And then they, they cast him adrift in a basket, trusting that God would watch over him. And then as we go on, when he had grown up, verse 24, He refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter because he had been found by Pharaoh's daughter and raised in her household. He was raised in royalty. This this Hebrew slave who should have been out with the other slaves was instead living in the lap of luxury and treated as royalty. But it says at some point he began to understand this. And evidently something was going on inside of him and he had a problem with this. And Hebrews says, as this great example, he chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. He persevered because he saw him who is invisible. And at this point, I want to ask the author of Hebrews, are you reading the same Bible I am? Because if you read the story of Moses, that is not exactly how I would sum up his story. All this stuff that he's talking about leaving Egypt, the Old Testament tells us Moses lost his temper one day. He saw an Egyptian beating up a Hebrew slave. He literally, it tells us, He looked around to make sure nobody was watching. 
and then he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. This was not an act of great courageous faith. It was, in many ways, a poor choice. The next day, it says, he learns that the Hebrews knew what he had done and he was afraid that the Egyptians would find out and that he would lose his life. It literally says he was afraid and so he left. There's no mention of Christ in that passage. There's no mention necessarily in this great faith, oh, Moses was just trusting in God to work out his plans. No, it it actually looks like a really bad decision on Moses' part. So what's going on when we have this Old Testament account here that shows in many ways a horrible decision on Moses' part and then a New Testament account that's holding him up as this great example of faith. And here I think we get at the crux of this chapter. The examples in this chapter that we are to look to, it's not the actions of Abraham or the actions of Moses It's the actions of the one who gave them his promise and how he fulfills that promise in their life. Parents, as you teach your kids, you tell them about Noah and Abraham and Moses, or if you teach here in church, don't. Don't talk to them and say, you need to be like Abraham. You need to be like Noah. You need to be like Moses. Talk to them and say, you need to trust in the one that Moses was trusting in. That's what the author is calling out here. That's the example that's going on. Moses lived a life in general trusting in the promises of God. If you look specifically at this encounter in his life from the Old Testament, you might say, man, he really messed up. And I think you'd be right. But God was still carrying out his promise because that's what God does. And so the author of Hebrews is talking about this grand story of faith. God's promises enduring and carrying on in spite of all difficulties. And he's saying, look at this example of Moses, how God was faithful and his promises were true. Because at the end of this, in the beginning of the next chapter, he's going to challenge us and say, they had promises. How much greater are the promises we have through Jesus Christ? In verse 28, it talks about the Passover. Another very difficult situation. I would think by human logic at this point in the story of the Exodus, I would be very tempted as an Israelite to gather the other Israelites and say, hey guys, we need to back off a little bit. We, we probably need to just do something to make the Egyptians happy because everything's falling apart and they're really, really mad at us and it, God hasn't rescued us yet. This isn't going so well. Our lives are getting worse rather than better. And yet God comes to them and says, I'm going to go through the land and I'm going to bring my judgment. And The firstborn of every household is going to die. And he says to them, but if you trust in me, I will save you and here's what I'm going to do. Instead of your child dying, you are to sacrifice an animal. Take the blood of that animal, put it above your doorpost. And when I see it, I will pass over your house. That's what the term Passover means. And the fact that the Israelites did this showed great faith. It showed that they understood that the greatest threat in that moment was not from the Egyptians. And the greatest thing they needed to trust in was not in dealing with the Egyptians, it was trusting in God. They needed to look at God's promises, not at their feelings about the situation. 
And that's exactly what they did. And in the next few verses, again, we have the the overflowing of this promise and the effect on future activities. Verse 29, by faith, the people passed through the Red, Red Sea as on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. The story of Moses that begins there with this individual and then overflows to the people of Israel. Again, they're brought to a moment that makes no sense. If you were strategizing as a guide for the people of Israel how to get them from Egypt to the promised land, you would have not taken them to the shores of the Red Sea. It made no sense. Here they were trapped, this ragtag group of people. No trained fighters, probably no weapons among them whatsoever at this point. And God takes them to a place that is strategically indefensible and from where there's, there's no way out. They're trapped. Not only that, but the greatest army in the world is pursuing them. This was a bad place to be. And yet they followed by faith. And God's faithfulness to them caused the Red Sea to be separated. And they walked across on dry land. Verse 30, by faith the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around them for seven days. This was a horrible battle plan. Going to the strongest city of the, this new land that they were trying to conquer. And again, now by this time they had fought some battles. They were a little bit more seasoned. Things had gone a little bit better. And the battle plan is to get close to the wall and walk around it and shout and blow trumpets was a bad decision. I mean, at best, they're just going to look foolish. At worst, they're going to get wiped out because they're putting themselves in a very vulnerable position. And yet they trusted God's promise. He promised them if they do this, that city would fall. And that's exactly what happened. And then we have verse 31, a subset of that story, this prostitute Rahab, that when the spies come into the city of Jericho, she made a choice. This woman that had made a lot of bad choices before, and we don't know why, but she makes a choice in that moment. This city, as great as it was, as strong as its walls were, God was greater. And she made a choice that her priorities were going to lie with the God of the Israelites and not her own people. And so she protects the spies. And the story says that when the walls fell, one little part didn't fall. And it was the part where Rahab lived, in the wall itself. And God protected her and her family right there in that place. All of these are stories of God's promises at work in situations where it would have been easier to trust in something else. And so I'm going to ask you again, Is your faith based on feeling or on promise? You see, God's promise to Abraham was about a son. The son, the child of the promise. And we see the tracing of this this child of promise through Abraham's offspring to Isaac, to Jacob, and so on. The Moses' story culminates with the Passover The Passover is ultimately about the sons of Israel and the sons of Egypt and the death of the firstborn. Our promise is also based on a son, Jesus, the Son of God. 
And that story is our promise. This is God coming to you saying, I promise something to you. Turn with me to Matthew 26. Because when God makes a promise, we need to make sure that our faith is based on that promise. Matthew 26, verses 26 through 29 is Matthew's account of the Last Supper. Jesus, the night that He is arrested, the night before He is put to death on the cross, He is having and sharing this Passover meal with His disciples. And it says in verses 26 through 29, While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and gave it to His disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is My body. Remember, the Passover was a reminder of a lamb that was was slain for the people so they could be saved. And He says, now, the food is not about a lamb. He says it's about Me. And He says, verse 27, Then He took a cup, and when He had given thanks, He gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is My blood of the covenant. Do you know what that word means? It means promise, commitment, contract, if you will. The binding promise of God to us. A promise wrapped up, not in wishful thinking or in our moment-by-moment feelings, but the promise that is 100% dependent upon the cross of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Your relationship with God is based on a promise. The story of our faith is not actually about us. Or our faith. It's about God and His faithfulness to us. And when you believe, you become part of a story way bigger than you. Way bigger than me, bigger than this church, bigger than this country, bigger even than this world. You become part of the eternal plan of God through His Son to bring glory to Himself. So in those moments when you're struggling, remember Abraham. Remember Moses. But don't just stop there. Remember the God that they trusted in. And remind yourself, I, through the promise of Jesus Christ, am part of that story. And if God was faithful then, and He was faithful when His Son was on the cross, and He was faithful on Easter morning, He is faithful now. Whatever your now may be. So is your faith based on God's promise? I pray it is. Because if not, when you go through difficult times, you're really going to struggle. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, may we know Your promise. And God, that starts by knowing Your Son, Jesus Christ, and trusting in Him as our Savior. And then it continues and grows as we dig into Your Word and we're fed by Your Word and we we grow and mature in our faith. It's fed as we read the stories of old and the saints of the Old Testament and how they were faithful and yes, stumbled and yet how you were eternally faithful to them. It's strengthened as we read the New Testament and we see the early church and the spread of the gospel in a world that wanted wanted nothing to do with Christ. And yet the church goes from just 11 men to thousands upon thousands. And it grows as we sit here today. And we look around the room at each other. And we realize the same promise to the person next to us and across the room is the promise that saves us. And we are in this together. 
It grows as we look at our brothers and sisters in Christ around this area and around this world. And we say, God is at work. His promise has not and will not ever fail. And so I pray in those moments, may we have a perspective of faith. To have faith that is based on a promise and therefore able to endure. We praise you for this promise secured through your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.